Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Our guest today is Kentucky Morrow. Kentucky is an investment professional with uh, really uh, a deep background, uh, ranging from private equity, investment banking, and early stage uh, venture investing as well. Um, a good starting place, Kentucky, would be maybe for you to just kind of give us uh, um, a general description of your background and uh, the kinds of things you've been involved in historically. Yeah, ha- happy to. So coming out of grad school, I joined an investment bank called England and Company as part of their healthcare team, where did a variety of transactions across the healthcare services, IT and medical device industry. I'd say the bulk of my time was spent on medical devices and services, uh, spent good five years there, was a vice president, and then joined up with Dental Innovation Alliance or DIA, which is an early stage venture capital firm. Uh, focused exclusively on the dental technology sector. And what makes it unique beyond just its focus on the dental sector is it's backed from a institutional kind of LP perspective by both some of the executives of some of the largest DSOs in the country, but also uh, some of the strategic players in terms of OEMs uh, that you see within the dental sector. So as a principal, I help lead up our sourcing origination and execution of different investments in, in early dental technologies. That's great, and boy, that the uh, the technology in generally in dentistry has been evolving at such a rapid clip, and that's actually one of the I think historical challenges for a lot of practice owners is the requirement to continue to invest uh, very often not insignificant dollars uh, to kind of keep pace with uh, that evolving uh, technology. I know, and I guess this reaches back a little bit to your private equity background. Um, you know, my background is in the in the DSO space, and clearly one of the the sort of general strategies of the private equity community is to invest in industries that are fragmented with a view towards. Uh, consolidation, and that's certainly uh, characteristic of the, of the DSOs. Can you speak a little bit, I guess, from your own experience and perspective to, you know, what the underlying rationale uh, to that approach has been and maybe things that you've seen in that regard? Yeah, I think you've really seen it start across the medical industry and then moved into what I'll describe as multi-site healthcare units. And while it it's there's certainly been a large uptick in the formation of DSOs. I'd say it even started earlier in terms of the veterinary market, for example. But 
private equity likes to find fragmented opportunities where they can really drive efficiency through scale. And by having that, they're able to consolidate back office. They were able to find a lot of synergies in terms of a cost standpoint, but they're also able to find it in terms of that exit valuation, which is really where they find key drivers. So when you have a business that's producing a million in EBITDA and it's dependent on you know, a few dentists, let's say one or two even, something happens to one of them, it's a lot riskier from a risk reward standpoint. So what people are willing to pay for that is significantly less than if you're doing five, 10 million in EBITDA and, and that risk is spread out. So when private equity looks at those opportunities to consolidate industries, they look for opportunities where there's a stable growth, but fragmented, and they can drive both cost reductions to have greater operating margins and profitability as they think about paying down debt, but then also multiples expansion in terms of by having reduced risk and greater scale associated with that, it's just worth more to uh, future buyers. And I think we're at an interesting inflection point within the dental industry as it relates to consolidation and some of that merger arbitrage as well. Yep. Yep. I would agree. Uh, I saw a statistic recently that said that fully 70% of physicians on the medical side work either for private equity-backed consolidators or hospital-based systems. And the statistics in dentistry suggest that maybe it's somewhere between 22 and 25% of practices are currently affiliated with the DSO, but obviously that's growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, the DSO sector of the profession has been the fastest growing over the last uh, several years by a fairly significant margin. And for some of the same reasons that you, that you described, when I first got involved, the vast majority of dentists that looked to affiliate with the DSO tended to be late career guys or uh, gals that were really looking to kind of put in place a predictable exit slash transition strategy. And over the course of the last three to five years, it's kind of steadily trended downward. I think generally as the whole notion of DSOs has become more widely proliferated as well as, you know, people are finding, I, I guess, that uh, the economics uh, can be pretty favorable. And I've been working with dentists uh, in one capacity or another over the course of uh, 40 years I have yet to meet one who told me I'd like to spend more time managing uh, staff, paying bills, doing accounting, et cetera, et cetera. So when the DSOs come to the table and say, look, we'll take all of that workload off your shoulders, let you focus on what you uh, do best and what you'd like to do, which is uh, take care of your patients, it can be pretty compelling. Yeah, I would agree. And I think the the real evolution that DSOs have underwent to from their initial formation and the regulatory challenges that they faced out of that, combined with some of the public companies, the DSOs went public far too early and yeah. faced some challenges there. I think that held back the industry from a lot of more rapid growth. But as some of those regulatory burdens have eased, it's allowed for uh, greater interest in the sector, as well as kind of the memories of some of those public companies has gotten forgotten, which has driven private equity interest. And then to your point too, on the dentist change, I think the secular trend just of cost as it relates to school has just grown so exorbitant. You know, if you're a new dentist coming out of school, 
it's very challenging to open up your own practice. So you face the challenge of trying to find someone to take you on as an associate, or there's a pretty compelling model that DSOs are able to offer in terms of getting that same skill knowledge, not having to learn in as depth, a lot of those office skills and being able to really focus on and hone your craft. And I think for a lot of dentists, it's even advantageous to join a DSO, even relative to being an associate, because so many, uh, particularly in the GP market, DSOs are focused on upskilling their dentists, teaching them how to become implantologists, teaching them ortho to help drive production. Um, When you're coming out of dental school, I think that it's really become an evolved model where DSOs are quite attractive, even from a clinical standpoint, in terms of expanding your scope of practice. That frankly probably wasn't the case 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's funny you should mention that. I saw a statistic from the American Dental Education Association that said that in 2019, the average dental school grad came out of school with $285,000 of educational debt, which is unmanageable in my mind. I just, uh, yeah. I can't, I can't contemplate being at the very earliest stages of your career and carrying that heavy a load in your backpack. And it's also, you point to, I think, a fairly interesting uh, phenomenon because historically before DSOs, young dentists, really only alternative was to associate with a, a, a more experienced dentist. And there were very often natural tensions in that relationship because the senior dentist was reluctant to give up productivity and income to the junior dentist. So very often these young associates would join practices only to have to leave, you know, a year, year and a half later because they weren't really doing very well, not making much of a living and not really getting experience. Whereas in the DSO universe, The DSO has a vested interest in having that young associate be as productive as possible. So they're going to both support their skill development as well as try and make sure that their schedule is is full and that they're seeing as many patients as as possible. So I, you know, I think you're exactly on point with that. In my experience, you know, most of the institutional investors meaning PE specifically, have a tendency to leverage their equity investment with debt in order to facilitate their ability to generate uh, higher returns. Clearly, the cost of capital is going up as uh, interest rates have increased. I'm curious if you have any perspective about, one, I guess, how you would anticipate or have seen that this has affected valuations and then also whether you think it will, uh, you know, potentially slow down deal volume or activity uh, as compared to what otherwise might be the case if the rates weren't going up. Yeah, I think that last point is really the key of where the market's at right now. As the cost of capital has risen, you have maybe a market dislocation where buyers are faced with the reality of what they're able to pay for practices and sellers or potential sellers Uh, are seeing what practices got two, three years ago and saying, that's what I want today. And I think that's driven a decline in deal volume. 
you know, we don't invest in DSOs per se, but we keep active tabs on that market, obviously. And the last number I heard was there was 20 plus in terms of actual DSOs in a stalled M&A process or ongoing M&A process. So you're seeing that decline in volume right now because of that gap between buyer and seller expectations. I think right now you're going to see a lot of DSOs tighten their belt in terms of reducing their spend on non-core activities. But I would suspect over the next 12 to 18 months, as that gap subsides and new reality sets in, um, you're more likely to see increased M&A activity in terms of people are willing to sell at the prevailing market rate and people kind of get through tightening their belt and over the next 12 months. But I think for the next period, uh, until then, you're likely to see kind of that subdued volume uh, until we get past this. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's been my experience as well. I, what, I, what I'm seeing is it's tended to have, I think, a more significant effect on the middle and lower tier of DSOs in terms of their size and scale. And the larger players... Uh, you know, what I would describe as enterprise level DSOs. And these are folks that are in the top 10 to 12 uh, DSOs in terms of a size and scale. They're still out there pretty active and haven't really re noticeably reduced valuations. Although I'm seeing a little bit of a change in uh, the structure of consideration. Um, they're tending to decrease modestly the amount of cash at closing, increasing equity, and in some cases, you know, layering in a note obligation to the to the sellers as well. One of the things that I think has been really a not insignificant driver of the success of DSOs has been the uh, the differing level of economics available to the dentist seller as compared to traditional dentist-to-dentist uh, -to -dentist transactions. Historically, yeah. when a dentist bought a practice, almost 100% of the time, they were relying on bank financing. And the banks basically would have a an arbitrary ceiling to how much they would be willing to lend based on uh, revenue and profitability. Whereas the DSOs are obviously doing it based on a multiple of EBITDA and acquiring dental businesses in the same way that they would acquire a manufacturing business, other distribution businesses, um, whatever the case might be. And so they're also recognizing the arbitrage between uh, what they can acquire a practice for and what they ultimately sell it for on uh, uh, a recapitalization or, or sale at some point in the future, which I guess sort of raises the question in a generic sense, is there a particular sort of set of menu items or things that a dentist owner should, should focus on in anticipation of a transaction at some point in the future to try and maximize their valuation? What would you... Uh, say is important for them to consider. Yeah. And I think you you touched on a lot of things that are important. Uh, and I would agree with your point that it's really those, what I'll say, uh, emerging DSOs that are potentially the most challenged from an M&A perspective, because as they think about kind of growing, right, so much of that growth has been financed through acquisition. 
it's they run up against that debt challenge much quicker than maybe some of the larger DSOs. But I think we're starting to see a shift from DSOs from being purely a financial arbitrage standpoint of just investing and buying a practice for five, six times EBITDA, and then selling it for 10 times because it's part of a consolidated entity to really how can you drive value to the practice? How can you be technologically forward and offer something unique to have higher margins, a higher scale and, and something really proven out? So if I'm thinking about selling my practice to a DSO, what I'm thinking about is, of course, having clean financials, not having commingled books, you know, it's it's great that you can run some expenses through that. But as you prepare for your sale, showing that clear differentiation and having it a cleaner books just gives confidence in that diligence process and really helps, you know, that multiple that you're going to get the incremental tax savings you get for a year or two versus maybe an extra turn of EBITDA by the buyer having confidence in your numbers is something that I would seriously consider. The other factor I would look at is technological adoption. Um, Different DSOs have different models of it as it relates to capital equipment and other expenditures within the practice. Some very much value not having to replace machines, uh, whereas others are are less sensitive and focused on that. Um, but I think it's something to consider as you're selling your practice about through the diligence process, what's important to that DSO buyer and who aligns with you. But beyond that, I even think about the technology adopted at the practice level. If you're able to show that you can adopt technology, be innovative in that sense and be willing to adopt it, you're you're likely to see higher same source sales growth and greater operating margins, which has the direct financial impact uh, when a DSO looks to buy from you. So if you're able to make some of that investment kind of a year or two in advance of technology, have some form of differentiation, you start to see that in the margin profile or growth profile of your practice. That's when you can really see uh, some higher multiples, especially in a capital environment like this, where same source sales growth is at a premium relative to just buying a, a stable practice. Yep. Yep. It couldn't, couldn't agree more. I, I have long had the opinion that if uh, if a DSO can't deliver a higher rate of growth than industry averages, you know, as a dentist, why why would you you sell to a DSO? I mean, you really, I think that's an important uh, uh, point of differentiation uh, among uh, uh, DSOs. An awful lot of them talk a good game, but when you really look at the data. There's different stories uh, being told there. And so it's important in the same way that the DSO does due diligence on the practice, the practice should be doing due diligence on the on the DSO buyer as well. Particularly if you're rolling equity, you want to know who you're rolling it with. Yeah. And, and that actually uh, brings me to kind of my next question is, in my experience, almost 100% of the DSOs give the rollover equity as one component of the consideration that they pay when they acquire a practice. And that rollover equity tends to take one of two forms and sometimes a combination of the two. And that one is a uh, an equity interest in their own practice on a joint venture basis with a DSO that gives them uh, the benefit of some distribution of profits uh, for as long as they continue to to hold that equity. And then the other is equity in the uh, 
the parent uh, holding company. So they have kind of a piece of the total rock, if you will. And again, in my experience, dentists have all kinds of opinions about whether equity is a good thing or a bad thing. And there are stories on both ends of the continuum there where dentists have made out extraordinarily well with their equity uh, rollover in some circumstances where it really didn't live up to expectations. And, uh, you know, I guess one of the questions I have for you, again, based on your perspective and experience, do you see uh, the rollover equity as a good thing or a bad thing for the typical dentist seller? And maybe how might they differentiate between the two? Yeah, I think it really depends on the individual circumstances. If you're nearing retirement, I'm probably placing less value on that equity rollover because it has less time to compound and need cash. If I'm earlier in my career as a dentist, that equity potential has a lot more meaning to me as it can compound over time. In terms of kind of thinking about practice level equity versus I'll describe it as corporate level entity, I think that gets to where diligence is important. Obviously, you know your own practice better and you can have more comfort in that. In some ways, it's more limited in terms of it's just focused on your practice itself. If you're joining up with a DSO that is on a fast growth trajectory level, you think you can really exit at a large scale and and really buy into their mission. As you think about that multiples arbitrage, you're starting to join that entity. So as they grow, continue to uh, expand their practices. That's where you can think about capturing some of that value as other practices get acquired as well and, and capturing some of that arbitrage. Now, it takes a little bit more faith in terms of understanding that they're acquiring good practices beyond yours and understanding that corporate structure. But I think that's where you get into maybe some of that higher variance than just maintaining an, an equity ownership stake in your practice yourself. Yeah, yeah. And implicit in what you say clearly is, you know, it's important to understand when you when you get your equity, where that DSO is and their particular uh, sort of growth horizon before the next liquidity event. So, you know, in my experience, most of the private equity folks tend to want somewhere between a five to seven year holding period, ideally, sometimes less. Uh, occasionally longer if the performance isn't uh, isn't there, but if you're if you're in year one of that five year cycle, you've got five years for that equity to compound. Whereas if you're in your year four, you know you've only got one year, and it's going to be valued basically on what the value of the enterprise is at the time that you uh, receive that equity. Yeah, so, you know somebody that's in the fourth year is. That four years of growth is already under their belt and going to be at a much uh, much higher value per unit of equity. Uh, whereas in year one, you've got that uh, that sort of long run cycle uh, in front of you, and so it uh, is a plus. In my experience, if you're dealing with one of the more established, more reputable DSOs. The equity has been something that generally has delivered a very nice return. I think it gets a little bit more dodgy as you move further down the food chain in terms of the size and tenure of the of the particular DSO. Uh, is that a conclusion that you would agree with? I would say it depends on your partner. I think you've seen 
the rise of some DSOs very quickly in terms of becoming those because they have a good corporate model. I think it's important regardless to vet your partner, but you know, it's kind of a war of attrition. The DSOs that were, I'll say, unsavory, a lot of them fell by the wayside. And a lot of those apex DSOs, 500 practices plus, are those that they got there for a reason. They did right by those practices that they acquired, and they've done things the right way by and large. So it's not to say that just because an entity is smaller or earlier in its life cycle, it's necessarily bad. But I think that level of diligence in terms of market intelligence and references as you as a dentist is is higher. And there's a bit more of a burden on you to make sure you know who you're getting in partnership with rather than some of those larger entities that have a a set playbook and set way of treating their docs post-acquisition. Got it. Got it. That's a great perspective. Um, Kentucky, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the specific things you're involved in today you know, given that you're, you've both in past uh, lives and I guess in your current life, life, you're looking to make investments in, in companies. So in addition to speaking to the kinds of things you're, you're doing currently, I'd also be interested in whatever perspective you might have in terms of what, what constitutes a, uh, a strongly investable opportunity, you know, where the kinds of things that you look for as an investor. Yeah, happy to. So I, I guess maybe I'll pivot a little bit. So within DIA, we really focus on investing in emerging dental technologies, both on the device standpoint, as well as on the software side for operations. So a lot of what we're looking for is things that can improve efficiency at a practice level, improve clinical outcomes and drive same-store sales growth. Uh, And a lot of those are related, but the way I think about it is cost reduction, clinical efficacy, or increased revenue. And the best products are those, and the best companies to invest in are those that can check all three boxes. And I'll give an example of one of our portfolio companies that, that we feel really strongly about. It's a company called Dentagnostic based out of Germany. And they have a salivary diagnostic tool for AMMP8, which is a biomarker that identifies the onset of gum disease um, up to five years in advance before there's visible symptoms. Now, This is a product that in kind of trials that have been done by some of the large DSOs, both in Europe as well as in the U.S., is shown to drive case acceptance because you're able to identify perio. It's not just a doc telling a patient, it's here is a test. This is your sensitivity level. We need to do something about it. So drives revenue that way and then drives further hygiene appointments. So you're driving revenue, but you're also driving clinical efficacy because you're helping to delay uh, or even prevent in a lot of instances gum disease. And that has implications both for general dentistry and and general oral health, but also as you think about implants and peri-implantitis and potential implant fare. So broad spectrum of applicability. So when we look for opportunities, it kind of has to check those core boxes. And then we look for many of the same things that you would look for in terms of a dental practice. We're looking for strong revenue growth, a strong understanding of the market, a great team, someone that we want to partner with and really be there with them for a long period of time. And that's something that I think is important too, as a, as a practice owner in terms of thinking with DSOs, um, who do you want to partner with? That's where we probably spend a lot more of our time 
than you would think about from an investable asset standpoint. Yes, the financials have to be there. It's kind of a prerequisite. But after that standpoint, it's that human connection of who you're getting in business with that really guides a lot of our investment decisions. Gotcha. And again, really on point. This is uh, this is good stuff. And I'm interested, you know, given that you've got a, a lot of sort of deal experience, you know, what would you describe as among the most common reasons that deals fail? And I guess I'm interested in the flip side of that coin as well. You know, what are the circumstances or the characteristics that most often lead to success in your mind? Yeah, I think what most leads to success is two parties that are mutually aligned and incentivized in that way. You know, in a lot of instances, you'll have what I call a potentially interested seller, which is to say they'll sell at the right price. And that's fine. But a lot of times it can lead to challenges in the deal process from the buyer's perspective, because it's not the right price is important, but it's not the be all end all. You have to be aligned in terms of post acquisition strategy, what the plan is with the team moving forward uh, from an M&A perspective. And similarly, as a seller, when you're looking at the buyer, you want to make sure that you understand what their goals are and what their challenges are for the business. And really having a buyer that's open about what their challenges are and how they plan on making changes is important because otherwise you can get down the road and be uh, 70, 80% of a deal done and then realize it's not a good fit. So someone upfront about that, where there's real mutual value and, and a mutual agreement in terms of why they're trying to do a deal is how you can drive deal success. So in terms of how we think about investments in the dental technology companies, we look to do two things. One, we look for those technology solutions that help practices in, you know, growing revenue, reducing costs or clinical efficacy. But we also look for ways that we can help them, which is where we think we're uniquely positioned in terms of being backed by some of the largest DSOs, as well as some of the other industry players in the dental industry, where we have that unique knowledge expertise of the dental sector can help make connections to support those companies to drive revenue and support them in terms of creating partnerships and growing, but not necessarily having the challenges associated with being a single party on a cap table that potentially limits their opportunities when it comes time to exit uh, through through an M&A opportunity. So we look for those opportunities to work together and that drives success. What drives failure is misalignment in terms of stated goals. And then second, I'll just have a broad category of time, uh, which is the time kills all deals. You just don't know what's going to happen in the future. It could be COVID, could be an interest rate spike, could be a credit event. You don't know. But as time happens, as time passes, it's just more likely that something unknown will occur that can dramatically change the dynamics of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, in my conversations with uh, with sellers, one of the first things I try and alert them to uh, is that you know it's important to think about this not in the context of a single moment, one-time financial event, and all your energy and focus goes into how do I maximize that financial equation to understanding that this is really going to be a relationship, a marriage, if you will, that's going to require you to operate in partnership with the person on the other side of the table. And so it's important that as you 
think through issues and negotiate uh, specific terms that you really try and understand the implications for the party on the other side of the table. I've seen so many times uh, sellers spend all their time and energy trying to get the last nickel out of the deal in ways that uh, really start to bump up against uh, the patience and, and fortitude of the buyer, uh, where they begin to question, well, is this really the right kind of person to be our partner? Yeah, I've seen that plenty. And I've also seen on the other side, too, where a buyer sometimes will be so focused on checking boxes, so to yeah. speak, where it ultimately distracts the seller from executing and delivering that quality of care. So again, it just gets to that balance. And I don't think anyone's ever had a perfect M&A deal or investment deal in general where everyone was perfectly there. But I think that just gets back to people having open lines of communication, someone that you can trust and say, hey, I know you need this information for your diligence process, but I need to pause and focus on clinical care for a week or something and having that support. And likewise, being having that that clear line of communication of why, if you're making an ask for something outside of the initial deal terms, why you're making that ask and why it's justified. But otherwise, you start deteriorating that relationship and that marriage, so to speak, after the fact, it, it really creates challenges later on. Yeah. And yeah, I guess the other thing uh, I was saying, again, this is just my own personal experience is is that uh, I always encourage people, you know, not to let the attorneys operate independently in terms of their interaction with the other side, that, you know, the business people really on both sides need to be making the decisions and controlling the process because attorneys by their nature, you know, see themselves as advocates for the party that they represent. And so, their default response most often is no, um, you know, when there's an ask that uh, that comes forward, as opposed to, well, let's really think through this request in the, in the business context and understand what the implications for us as the buyer is and also for the seller. And as you say, that, that sort of checking of boxes, what I would describe as sort of the bureaucratic uh, default, it's important to to try and avoid those kinds of things on uh, on both sides of the table in in my judgment yeah i would agree um what sort of trends and i guess to some degree this is implicit in how you describe the types of investments that you currently seek in terms of the uh, device slash software side of the world but what are some of the trends that you see that are going to shape the industry uh, going forward yeah I think DSOs are really at an inflection point in terms of how they operate. So much of the initial model was built off of multiple arbitrage, rolling up practices, reducing cost through uh, synergistic back office support, and particularly some of the larger ones, but even what I'll describe as mid-market DSOs are starting to run up against it. The market's gotten so competitive for acquiring practices or opening new practices and getting talent for docs that they're all paying near the same thing. There's some differentiation, but by and large, it's a competitive market, which means the next phase for growth or even beyond growth, the next stage of DSO operations, yes, 
acquisitions are a core part of the playbook, but they're not the only play in the playbook anymore. It's adopting new technologies and solutions that can really drive efficiency or drive same store sales growth. So when we look at different vectors that we want to invest in, we have a list of over 35 different themes within the industry that we track and see. And that can range all the way from sleep apnea as a potential new vertical to drive revenue to core operations such as revenue cycle management, uh, ranging from insurance verification all the way to claims posting. So in terms of those themes, we are constantly tracking them and looking for those that really drive operating efficiency or same source sales growth. And the number one feature that we see in terms of potentially driving sales growth is case acceptance. And we really like case acceptance because it drives same source sales growth, number one. But two, a lot of it is improving those clinical outcomes. So as you think about that bottom line or triple aim of healthcare, it really is there. And frankly, it has an impact on efficiency because your chair time is important there. So if you get that yes, you don't have to try to see more and more patients. It's taking the existing patient base you have and being more efficient and productive with it. So I'd say that on a clinical side, from an operations side, RCM, very important, an area that we're constantly looking at. Staffing continues to be a challenge in terms of finding personnel to manage the practice. Those are just a few, but I think it's when you think about that next stage, those that can really drive efficiency are going to be the focus of DSO adoption. I think it should be for a lot of individual and solo practices as well. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, You know, one of the things that I'm also seeing kind of occurring is, you know, for the longest time, the pendulum was swinging up in terms of third-party PPO participation. And because the PPOs have have been, I guess, really tough on their allowable fee levels, you're starting to see more and more practices looking to exit some, if not all, of the PPOs that they're uh, participating with and sort of it seems like the needle is moving back in the direction of a little bit more uh, fee-for-service currently, and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. Again, in my uh, fairly limited experience, a lot of uh, DSOs historically liked PPO participation because I think their perception was that PPO patients are attached to the practice because of the PPO participation and not necessarily to the individual practitioner. And so that there was some mitigated risk for them relative to provider turnover than would otherwise uh, be the case. And so there was a high level of comfort with a predominantly PPO practice as opposed to a more exclusively fee-for-service practice. But again, I think those perceptions are beginning to change or moderate a little bit. I would agree. And I think it's a reality that general dentists have been the hardest hit over the last 10 years in terms of a production standpoint. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of innovation in terms of upskilling GPs, helping them do implants, helping them do ortho cases, and capturing that revenue either within a PPO model or within a fee-for-service model as well. 
because of some of that pricing pressure that you're experiencing for just, you know, bread and butter general dentistry. So we're seeing it on the innovation side for sure as people look to, I guess, address some of those challenges and help GPs out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, historically, my experience over many, many years of working with the profession has been that the dentists that are the most successful tend to be those that have the the broadest scope of practice, you know, that they do more things. Um, so, you know, the, the, the general dentist who, who uh, started placing in addition to restoring implants early on, those guys generally are doing bigger numbers than your typical run-of-the-mill GP. And I think that that's, that's going to continue evolving. You mentioned sleep uh, uh, dentistry is one area of focus. And I, I certainly see that, uh, that happening as well. I'm a snorer myself, and so I, I can identify. <laughs> um, is there any particular advice or perspective that you would give to, you know, that young dentist that is entrepreneurial, really wants to build slash acquire multiple practices? One of the things that I think the DSO phenomenon has, uh, has created is a lot of young practitioners are kind of looking to build bigger businesses as opposed to just operating in the context of their own individual practice. I have a client that I work with in the Carolinas, mid forties, has 24 practices. You know, he's generating EBITDA in in the neighborhood of $10 million. Great. And, you know, did it all in a relatively compressed timeframe and use traditional bank financing to, to drive it. And he's sort of bumping up against his uh, uh, the ceiling of his tolerance of taking on additional debt. And so I think he's potentially looking to uh, the PE community or uh, an enterprise-level DSO to potentially do a broader transaction. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that we've seen as well. And as we kind of think about those those DSOs being at a turning point in terms of multiples arbitrage, you know, that client seems like the core example where either has to sell, take on an additional capital partner, or find a way to grow faster with his existing business to either take on more debt or pay it down more efficiently. So one thing that we've done recently, and and we're really proud of this, is created what we describe as the Alliance Program. So Dental Innovation Alliance is, you know, the name of our investment vehicle, but within that we have the alliance and that's targeted really for that emerging group of DSO. So sub 50 practices to join with DIA, not as an investor, but join with us in terms of getting access to vetted technology that's been uh, vetted from our diligence process, but also by some of those larger apex DSOs in terms of, is this something we're interested in? Will this work in our practice? Can this help drive efficiency, uh, revenue, or clinical outcomes as well? So in terms of working with those early stage DSOs, we have members that have joined us. They get access to our network in terms of you know some of the top CEOs, which, which you can see on our website, but also access to us, us, our opinions on different technologies and really evaluate them and see. So if you're kind of thinking of that route as as a dentist or you're coming up against that wall, 
please reach out. We're happy to have a conversation and help expand that Alliance program. But otherwise, even beyond that, I think looking at different innovative technologies is really the core way to grow outside of traditional bank debt, because there's only so many levers you can pull. And technology is like bank debt in the sense that it's leverage. It gives you an ability to do more, do more faster. Um, yeah. And that's what you can do from a same store sales perspective to get some of that leverage. Yeah, I also encourage uh, practitioners to really think in the context of what's the lifetime value of a patient and yes. you know, sort of in the context of integrating some of these uh, newer technologies will help increase that lifetime value. And as that lifetime value of the patient goes up, obviously it puts you in a position of being able to spend, you know, more dollars to generate uh, more patient opportunities. So it's, uh, it's kind of an, an exponentiating uh, effect to some degree. Uh, Kentucky, this has been fantastic. You have been uh, great. I think these uh, perspectives have been extremely valuable and will be helpful to, to our listeners. I really appreciate your taking the time today. I'm going to ask two things here as we close. One is I think you have my email address. If you will, shoot me an email just so I have yours, because I think there are some people that fit that profile of the uh, sort of emerging group that uh, I could uh, introduce you to, I think would potentially be a nice fit for uh, for what you described. And then yeah, the last thing I'll say, I use a third-party firm to help me with these podcasts, and they'll do some editing, some putting in some intro uh, music, uh, yeah, I'll take stuff. Once all that's done, I'll make sure that we get a recording, uh, uh, in your hands. No, uh, appreciate that Stan. And thanks for having me on and really enjoyed the conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess just lastly, any final thoughts or pearls of wisdom that, uh, uh, you want to put out there? And no, I feel like that's perfectly okay. Cause we covered a lot no, of I've... I feel like we covered a lot. So it was a, yeah. it was a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we can have many more. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, go Blue Jays. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm, I'm a diehard Redskins slash Commanders fan. So uh, they've got an exhibition game tonight. So I'm uh, in my Redskins shirt. <laughs> Enjoy. Yes, the Washington football team now. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> we'll just say, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It was a pleasure. Uh, have a good one. This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you gain valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.